everyone. This is Jeffrey Kerr. I'm back with the April 2022 installment of the News of the Month series on the Care Reviews podcast. This is where I talk about a few different entertainment news stories that feel important and or interesting to me. Each of those stories you'll be hearing me talk about have been divided into four separate categories. The first set of them is about the Tony Awards. Anyone who's been following me ever since before I launched this podcast knows I usually love to provide coverage for the American Theatre Wing's annual awards show honoring the best of Broadway. However, I did not provide any coverage for last year's show at all beyond the initial announcements that it was happening. Why, you may ask? Because it was a big mistake for them to still give out competitive awards to a smaller-than-usual pool of contenders that opened during the abbreviated 2019-20 Broadway season. Had Broadway not shut down on March 12, 2020 because of COVID-19, we definitely would have not only had more productions in contention, but likely a lot more interesting choices in both nominations and wins. There was especially a very small pool of musicals in contention, and they were all pretty much these middle-of-the-road lowbrow jukebox shows. If you ask me, it would have been a much better idea to have just acknowledged the productions that opened with honorary awards as opposed to having each of them compete for the win in their respective categories. Thankfully, Broadway has been reopened several months at this point. It looks like the crop of plays and musicals in contention will be bigger than last year, so the season should hopefully be much more exciting to follow. This past month, key dates have finally been announced for the 75th annual Tony Awards, Eligibility for the 2021-22 Broadway season will end on April 28th. Nominations will be announced on May 3rd. The four-hour ceremony will take place on June 12th. The first hour will air exclusively on Paramount Plus, followed by a three-hour broadcast on CBS. Hopefully, the first hour on Paramount Plus can bring back the hour-long pre-show they used to do on PBS. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, from 1997 through 2002, the first hour of the Tonys was televised on PBS. They would not only present the design awards, but also both directing categories, book, score, choreography, and orchestrations. Then viewers would switch over to CBS to watch the main ceremony with the acting and production awards presented as well as the musical performances. I think it would be great to have a format like that back. In any case, I am happy to report that for the first time since 2019, I am excited for the next Tony Awards. This next news story is about a show that could be in contention at next year's Tony Awards. This fall, Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe's classic musical Camelot will be receiving a brand new Broadway revival for the first time in 29 years. For those unfamiliar, Camelot is an adaptation of the T.H. White's novel titled The Once and Future King, which in turn was based on the legend of King Arthur. The story follows an idealistic young King Arthur as he hopes to create a kingdom built on honor and dignity embodied by his Knights of the Round Table. His ideals, however, are tested when his lovely queen Guinevere falls in love with the young knight Lancelot and the fate of the kingdom hangs in the balance. The original production starring Richard Burton, Julie Andrews, and Robert Goulet opened on December 3, 1960 at the Majestic Theatre on Broadway. Despite mixed critical reviews, 
the show became a hit through its original cast recording and performance on The Ed Sullivan Show. While Camelot failed to receive a Tony nomination the following year for Best Musical, it still managed to win four awards overall, including Best Lead Actor in a Musical for Richard Burton. My familiarity with the show has mainly been through the original cast album, although I have seen a pro shot of a Broadway revival that was broadcast on HBO back in 1982. It starred Richard Harris as King Arthur, a role he previously played in the 1967 film adaptation. I've also seen PBS's broadcast of the New York Philharmonic's 2008 concert presentation on YouTube. It starred Gabriel Byrne and Marin Maisie, and featured veteran character actors in speaking parts like Christopher Lloyd and Fran Drescher. This production will be presented by Lincoln Center Theatre under the direction of Bartlett Shear. He has previously staged the most recent Broadway revivals of other classic musicals such as South Pacific, The King and I, Fiddler on the Roof, and My Fair Lady. Each of them opened to acclaim from critics, audiences, and won numerous awards. Though what is probably most interesting is that the production will incorporate a whole new book adapted from Alan J. Lerner's original libretto, and it will be written by none other than Aaron Sorkin. That's right, the creator of The West Wing and the screenwriter of The Social Network is writing a Broadway musical, although in this case, he's revising a classic one for the 21st century. So this should definitely be an intriguing project to keep an eye out on. This next news story is going to be a recap of the Oscars, which recently took place on March 27th this past month. Jack Mahanes is back to discuss them with me. So, Jack, are you ready to start? Let's do this, as we have a lot to talk about with this ceremony. Yes, yeah, so first up, the last award of the night. Thank God it was actually the last award to be presented on the telecast this year, and that's Best Picture. Now, when we last spoke, we were both settled on The Power of the Dog, but then PGA t- chimed in with Coda, and, you know, we both stuck with Power of the Dog for, you know, our own reasons, but Coda managed to pull out victorious. Yes, and what's so interesting is that this is the first time uh, since the editing category has been a category that something is one best picture without a directing or an editing nomination and so you know we all kind of wrote this off as like oh the nomination is a surprise when the nominations first came out given that the three it won or the only three nominations it received then i think after it won sag ensemble it just kept gaining momentum and then more people were starting to watch it and you're gonna find very few people who actually like hate this movie there are people that actually really hate the power of the dog like, I have friends who really hated that movie. But you, you're going to be very hard-pressed to find someone, even if they don't, like, love it. It was going to be very hard-pressed to find someone who said Coda was flat-out terrible. That's why I think it survived on the preferential ballot, and The Power of the Dog did not. Yes, you know, despite being the only film to have scored denominations in every single important category that is usually required to win Best Picture, such as directing, acting, screenplay, and editing, the power of the dog needed to win PGA to prove that it can do well on a preferential ballot, especially since it's a movie that people have questioned if it was going to be too divisive or not. And what's also worth noting is that every film that has won Best Picture without a directing nomination since 1989 managed to win the PGA beforehand. Just look at Driving Miss Daisy, Argo, and Green Book. Yes, although there are, you know, some other exceptions like Apollo 13 and Moulin Rouge and Loma Sunshine as well. But then again, I think, you know, The Power of Dog, I just kind of feel after the nominations, it just kind of ran out of steam. 
with the exception of the one award that it won, it just, I think it peaked a little too early. By the time final voting began, you know, people started, you know, becoming interested in Coda. I think once Apple realized that, hey, you know, we actually have something that could be a major contender on our hands, then they started like really, really campaigning it. And that's when we saw the surprise at BAFTA that Coda won adapted screenplay at BAFTA, even though it wasn't up for best picture. That was like the first sign that I thought, oh, maybe we should start taking Coda seriously to win Best Picture. And then once it won PGA, I thought, you know, okay, I definitely have to at least move this up to number two on Gold Derby. But still, like, I thought about it over the weekend, and I just thought, like, you know what, Power Dog got everything it needed. You know, it's simply, like, the craft branch is going to go for it. It has the support of the actors. And I just thought that in a photo finish that the Power Dog would win. And I do think the final result was pretty close. I, I don't think, like, Coda just completely, like, ran away with this. I do think it was very, very close in the end. Well, yeah, I remember in the anonymous ballots, I saw a lot of number one votes for Coda, though Power of the Dog did, you know, pretty good with number twos or threes. Although I must admit, I stuck with the Power of the Dog in the end because of a YouTube video Ryan Castleman posted explaining which of the Best Picture nominees had the most stats going in their favor. The film that did this year was The Power of the Dog. And Ryan also did a recap of past Best Picture races dating back to 2009, which was when the preferential ballot was introduced. And every year, the movie with the most stats going for it ended up winning. Of course, this year had to be the exception to that rule. I mean, Coda is now the first movie since Ordinary People way back in 1980 to have won Best Picture without a single Below the Line nomination. Not only that, but it's also the first Best Picture winner since Grand Hotel way, way back in 1932 that didn't have any directing nor editing bits. Though most important of all, Coda is now the very first movie released by a streaming service, in this case Apple TV+, Plus, to have won the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah, and just every year we think, you know, is this Netflix's year? Start of the 2018 season, people were saying, you know, this Roma could be the one to do it. That didn't happen. The next year, people said the Irishman could do it. And then that ended up winning absolutely nothing. Last year, you know, people thought Trial of Chicago 7 or Mank could be, you know, the one to do it. But both of those ran out of steam for the Best Picture conversation very quickly. This year, it was The Power of the Dog. And I don't really know. What do you think Netflix has to do to take the top prize? Well, I guess they just needed a film that is the least disliked by the Academy. Exactly. And not to mention that, you know, every year people say, oh, no, this movie can't win because of all these stats in their favor. Like in 2015, people were thinking Spotlight couldn't win Best Picture because then its only other prize would be for Best Original Screenplay. And the last time a Best Picture winner managed to pull off two Oscar wins overall was way back in 1952 with The Greatest Show on Earth. Yet Spotlight won in the end. Yes. And so that's the thing is that we can only rely on certain stats for so long. Now, a lot of stats you know, stayed intact this year, even though a lot of people tried to go out on a limb in other categories. But this is really the only category where like serious stats broke. And so now we just sort of have to sort of look at, you know, what film has the momentum going into Oscar night. And that was clearly Coda. So I think one of the things when people look back at this category, uh, when they're looking at Oscar history, they're just going to see that Coda was the film that picked up momentum at the right time. And I think the power of the dog ran out of steam was the thing. And I think that after um, it got 12 nominations, I wonder if some people, when they finally saw the movie, they were like, that's it. 
Now that's not me. I thought Power of the Dog was excellent. I thought it was a brilliantly crafted movie, really well acted. And, you know, I'm really happy that it did win the one award that it did win. Well, yeah. In fact, we should say that Power of the Dog is now the very first film to have one best director, nothing else on Oscar night since The Graduates back in 1967. And that is crazy because, you know, I was wondering if The Power of the Dog could surprise in one of those tech categories. So it's like, it has 12 nominations. It can't just win director and nothing else, but it did. And so I still find that, you know, crazy that that actually happened. Well, yeah, it also happened with Giants back in 1956, where it had 10 nominations. It was this big epic. It won Best Director for George Stevens, but won nothing else. But hey, you know, being in, you know, mentioned in the same breath as The Graduate, that's good company for The Power of the Dog to be in. I agree. And in fact, I saw on Twitter that a big trend with Best Picture winners recently is that they often go to films from filmmakers who have never had a Best Picture nominated film before. Last time it didn't happen was Birdman in 2014, and before that, it was No Country for Old Men in 2007. And something else that has also become a surefire path to winning Best Picture in recent years is that the movie must also take a supporting acting and screenplay prize to go with it. Just ask 12 Years a Slave, Moonlight, and Green Book. That's really, really, really great piece of trivia. Yes, so something we should probably take into account moving forward. But, you know, how I personally feel about Best Picture... I don't think Coda deserved to win Best Picture, personally. If I had to rank the Best Picture lineup, I probably would put it somewhere in the middle. I don't think that this win is going to age very well. I think a lot of people are going to recognize that it's a sweet movie. It's very well acted. But a lot of people, I think, are going to look back and go, that one, Best Picture? And so, yeah. I had a feeling it was going to happen, even though I went with Power of Dog at the end. But still, it was slightly disappointing that this actually won Best Picture. I think in hindsight, it might be seen similar as, you know, King's Speech versus Social Network from 2010, where the best picture winner is seen as a genuine good movie. I mean, people can make arguments. They really deserve to win. But look, the movie itself is fine. It may only get a ton of flack, mainly because it won best picture over something people thought deserved it more. And yes, and I liked Coda. I'm not saying I disliked the movie. I just preferred you know, at least five films in that category to Coda. Well, yes, although I must admit, Coda was my personal favorite of the Best Picture nominees, but, you know, that's all other conversation, so. And I fully respect your opinion. Mm -hmm. Yes, now, moving on to Best Actress, when we last spoke, we were both settled on Jessica Chastain, though since then we noticed quite a search for Penelope Cruz. She may have come out of nowhere to get this nomination for her performance in Parallel Mothers, but several of the anonymous ballots said that they voted for her because she was their passion pick. And sure, these ballots may not have come from a majority of Academy members, but they have correctly forecasted potential upsets before. And of course, we both switched to Penelope Cruz in the end, but that didn't happen. And I imagine a number of people on film tour are thinking, I'm glad Jessica Chastain has an Oscar, but she shouldn't have won it for that because it's far from being among her best work great actors rarely ever win oscars for their best performance yada 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 which you know goes back to a quote Catherine hepburn once said that wins the right actors win oscars but for the wrong roles i personally wouldn't have given jessica chastain the oscar myself but that's mainly because i thought most of her competition were much better but that being said the point i'm trying to make is that it's a never-ending problem film oscar buffs are always going to have now before we go into your thoughts on this particular one what was the first thing you told your friend Tarkan Khan when it happened? The first thing I told my friend Tarkan when this happened was, I've never been more happy to be wrong about a category. I'm going to call you out, my friend. 
The last time I thought this was when you convinced me to switch back to Anya Taylor-Joy for the Emmy, even though I was rooting very hard for Kate Winslet to win for Mayor of Easttown. And I was even mad at you because I was just so happy that Kate Winslet had won. That was just like, I didn't care that I got that wrong. And that's exactly how I felt when Jessica Chastain won the Emmy. And he said the same thing because we both were for Jessica Chastain. We thought that she should win. I'm going to push back on what you said the film Twitter would say, because I think a lot of people rec- do recognize that this is her best work, but not on film, not the people on film Twitter, because it's debatable what Jessica Chastain's best performance is. I mean, one of my favorites of hers was Zero Dark Thirty, and I would have given her the Oscar for that as well. But this performance was definitely the greatest stretch for her. It was definitely the most out-of-the-box performance that she's ever given. This is not like anything that she's done before The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And so I just thought that it was my favorite performance of these five. And I liked all five of them. Now, it was three things that made me switch to Penelope Cruz Friday night. The anomalous ballots, and I'm going to respond to this, because you said that it has correctly forecasted some upsets, but there, it's also been way off some other times. And one of my friends on film Twitter said, you know, for every Anthony Hopkins, there's a Richard E. Grant. Because I remember Richard E. Grant, he wasn't even close. He was killing it with the anonymous ballots, but he still lost to Mahershala Ali. You know, looking at the anonymous ballots, it's like a crapshoot. So it was that, it was Kyle Buchanan's tweet that there was a lot of buzz for Penelope Cruz at the Governor's Ball, which happened two nights before the Oscars. And then my friend Tarek said he knew some people who were voting for Penelope Cruz. So it was just that combination that made me think, okay, maybe this is real. And also Pete Hammond and Clayton Davis were also forecasting a Penelope Cruz win. But yeah, I just, looking back, that is one of the biggest face palm moments. But I don't care because I'm just going to say this right now. Jessica Chastain winning was my favorite win of the entire night. It really was because I've been a huge Jessica Chastain fan for a long time. You know, with, you know, her performances in Zero Dark Thirty, Interstellar, Molly's Game. She's just been consistently great. And so the fact that after 10 years of delivering such amazing performances that this one is the one that finally got her the Oscar. And I do not look at this as an IOU Oscar. I really think she won it because of how amazing that performance was. And film Twitter can say whatever they want. This is, at the very least, one of her best performances. And that's another respectable opinion. And although I'd really like to see how close the final vote was. I mean, this was clearly a repeat of the 2012 Best Actress race all over again, which, ironically, Jessica Chastain was involved with. And that race likely came down to Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook and Emmanuel Riva for more. Now, I remember two years ago, I replied to a comment Tariq Khan made on Facebook saying, have I ever been wrong? And I replied saying, Tom O'Neill can easily remind you about Emmanuel Riva, which then Tarek said, well, how close do you think the final vote was? Pete Hammond and I were both hearing lots of votes for Riva. I honestly believe that she came incredibly close, but looking at the stats, it was foolish to bet against Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I think it was close, but not like a photo finish close. I don't think it was like razor thin. I think it was probably the same gap between Emma Stone when she won for La La Land over Isabelle Huppert for Elle. So I'm thinking like it was like somewhere between like 3%, 5% that separated the both of them. That would be my guess. But here's why I think looking back, you know, a lot of people are going to go, that category lined up perfectly for Chastain. And I may have say this, said this on the previous episode. I don't remember if I did. But Penelope Cruz, Olivia Coleman, and Kristen Stewart – they were all going for a very similar vote within the Academy. 
So I think both Olivia Coleman and Kristen Stewart pulled away from Penelope Cruz's vote total. Whereas Nicole Kidman was the only person that would take votes away from Jessica Chastain. And the thing that really worked out in Chastain's favor was that Nicole Kidman's performance itself was very divisive. There were a lot of people that really despised that performance. I didn't, but even though Nicole Kidman was my least favorite of those five, I still thought she was very good. But I do know that a lot of people, including I've heard from some friends that some Academy members really did not like that performance. So in the end, it really is about how that category lines up. And I think Jessica Chastain, that category lined up in her favor. And for best makeup and hairstyling, I know you switched from Eyes of Sammy Faye to Doom. That was because Tarek told me that he heard some voters who genuinely didn't like the Eyes of Tammy Faye, which is another reason why I caved at the last minute, because I started wondering, like, oh, well, did people really care about the movie? I liked the movie, but I knew that some people didn't care about Tammy Faye. Whereas Dune was the Best Picture nominee, and it won almost all the tech categories, almost all of them. So I wondered if makeup and hairstyling would, would just go along for the ride. But then when um, Eyes Tammy Faye still won, that in a way restored my hope that oh, maybe Chastain still can do it. I remember Daniel Montgomery said this during his final Slugfest. He said that, you know, ever since Chastain didn't win for Zero Dark Thirty, people just thought she was just destined to win at some point. You know, even though she didn't get nominated until this year, some people were like, okay, Miss Sloan, is this going to be the one that's going to do it? That didn't happen. Molly's Games, this could be the one to do it, uh, didn't happen. And then she didn't get nominated for either of those. So I feel like the eyes of Tammy Faye was just like right role at the right time for her to finally do it. Because Tom O'Neill has been saying for over a year, I mean, a lot of Slugfest said, at least from what he was hearing, was that Jessica Chastain was someone who he was hearing they just really wanted to give an Oscar to. And I don't think that we're ever going to see Chastain give a performance like this big and over the top ever again. I mean, maybe I could be wrong, but I think this is definitely the biggest role we're ever going to see from her, like the big flashy role. This was that role. And I think a lot of kind of members thought, are we ever going to see her do something like this again? And so they voted for her because of that. Now, were there any predictions you nervously made, but were happy to be right about? Oh, um, let me think about that for a second. I'll give you one right away, which was a category you got wrong, which was best original screenplay. The biggest disappointment of the night for me. Because Licorice Pizza was my favorite movie of the year. And so even though, like, the next day, I was just, like, so excited about Chastain and a lot of other people. And that kind of overshadowed my disappointment. In the moment... You know, I was just like, oh, man, because I really thought Licorice Pizza deserved to win this category. I guess they just wanted to finally give it to Kenneth Branagh. And also, I think why Belfast still won this category was that, you know, how we say, you know, the most original movie wins this category. The people who think that way, that vote went three different directions. I think Licorice Pizza got some votes. Don't Look Up got some votes. To continue the conversation about the anonymous ballots, the worst person in the world was getting so many votes to where I know some people were predicting it to pull off a shockeroo. And so I think all of that helped Belfast in the end, because I think King Richard came in dead last for original screenplay. Yes, I agree. In fact, when we previously discussed this category on the show, Belfast had won the Golden Globe and Critics' Choice while it lost the BAFTA to Licorice Pizza. Then WGA chimed in where Don't Look Up won in the absence of Belfast. And I 
barely settled on Belfast because it was such a passion project for Kenneth Branagh. He was the face of that movie's campaign, and this seems like the best place to award his overall contributions. And I'm actually glad this happened, because while Belfast personally wouldn't have had my vote, I actually agree with you. I would have given it to Licorice Pizza, but that being said, there's no denying that this movie meant so much to Kenneth Branagh. Great for him. You know, Kenneth Branagh's very likable. I don't think the writing was the thing that made Belfast amazing or, you know, I mean, I liked the movie. I would give it like an eight out of 10, but I don't think the writing was the greatest part about that movie. And that was the only thing that Belfast won. So I think after eight nominations, they just finally wanted to give it to him. Yeah. Plus let's face it. Brano hasn't made a ton of prestigious movies in recent years. It was clear that, well, it was questionable. Well, how often are we going to see Brano back at the Oscars? Well, it's clear that PTA will probably have another shot someday. And that, and that was, I think what a lot of people were saying beforehand. That was like, we know that uh, Paul Tom Sanderson is going to still keep making amazing movies. Whereas, you know, with Kenneth Branagh, maybe now or never. And so, you know, good for him, but I'm just disappointed that it didn't go to Licorice Pizza. Now onto the telecast itself. What were your thoughts on it overall? I enjoyed the ceremony as a whole much more than last year. Because I thought last year it was just very slow. It was way more laid back. I thought the hosts overall did a very good job. I think Amy Schumer probably did the best job of the three hosts between her, Wanda Sykes, and Regina Hall. I did think they did a lot of things that were unnecessary. I didn't think that, you know, they needed to do the top five fan favorite or the top five Oscar cheer moments. I thought the performance of We Don't Talk About Bruno was a train wreck. I thought that was so bad. And then, of course, the big controversy of the night just kind of left you in a state of shock. And this is Friday as we're recording this. The show happened last Sunday, and I'm in still a state of disbelief that I saw what I saw. And I know um, we're going to get to that in a little bit, but yeah, I mean, that kind of put a dark cloud over the rest of the ceremony. Yes, indeed. Now, as for my thoughts, I mostly enjoyed it. I agree. I thought it was a step up from last year, though. What's interesting is that I know they obviously moved eight categories from the telecast to before the show to, you know, make it a little shorter. But what's ironic is that the telecast still ended up being three and a half hours long. And it's just so disrespectful to the below the line people that play a big role in making movies great. And they just replaced it with stuff that just fell flat for me. Here's something else I'll say about the telecast itself. This is a note to the Academy. Keep that set. Keep that seating set. Because that looked really cool. Like you had the, you know, the big audience in the back with the Dolby, but you had the nominees all at at tables or, you know, in these really nice chairs. That set design looked so cool keep that for next year well yeah that i would actually agree with i mean i know the telecast actually did improve in the ratings but hey at least you know it had movies that most of the general public at least went out to see and you know it had returned to form with the spectacle of it all and musical performances during the telecast and also what did you think of you know all the cast reunions from different movies on this show i really really enjoyed them i mean the best one was the reunion for my favorite movie of all time Pulp Fiction. I thought it was so cool how they came out. You know, John Travolta and Uma Thurman started, you know, doing the dance from the twist contest sequence at Jackrabbit Slims. And then Samuel Jackson, like, had the briefcase, which was, you know, the briefcase from the movie. And, like, they opened it up at Shine Gold, and then they pulled out the Best Actor envelope. I thought that was really, really well done. And it was so great to see the three of them back on stage together again. I loved that. 
Oh, yeah. And I also enjoyed, you know, the reunion of The Godfather as the original films recently celebrated its 50th anniversary where Francis Ford Coppola, Robert De Niro, and Al Pacino all came out. I mean, they didn't present an award or anything, but they uh, they talked about the film, although Pacino barely had anything to say, but, you know, that was still a pretty cool thing. That was very, very cool to see. And I always love it when we see reunions at the Oscars. I, I think it's so cool, though. I, I wish they had done some more. Why not have Jodie Foster come out and present Best Actress with Anthony Hopkins? That would have been really cool. I have no idea where Frances McDormand was that night. Maybe she was filming something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why not have her, her come out and present something with William H. Macy? That would have mm. been cool. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe next year we'll get Kate Winslow and Leonardo DiCaprio presenting together. That would be really right. Mm-hmm. It really would. I wish they had done a few more film reunions because it worked really well for the ones that took place but i just wish they had done a few more because it would have you know been really really cool yes i agree and of course we shall never forget the infamous reunion between faye dunaway and warren Beatty in 2016 where warren Beatty was accidentally handed the wrong envelope and faye dunaway accidentally announced la la land as the best picture whenever before it was revealed that was actually moonlight yes <laughs> though they did redeem themselves the following year by correctly announcing shape of water in any case now let's talk about the elephant in the room here which was okay chris rock came out to present an award he made jokes about jada pinkett smith which is ironic because when he last hosted the oscars six years ago he made jokes about jada pinkett smith during his opening monologue and this time man you know will smith got so fed up with it he went up on stage and punched chris rock <laughs> I literally had to rewind that. Like, did I really just see what I just saw? Did I see that for real? And I, I just couldn't tell at first whether it was a bit or not. I thought at first, like, oh, this has to be a bit or something. This can't be real. But then they cut to Will Smith yelling, and it's muted because he's, you know, dropping some F-bombs. And that's when I thought, oh, this might not be a bit. And then on Twitter, Scott Feinberg was uh, tweeting out videos of Denzel Washington, Bradley Cooper, and Tyler Perry all going over to comfort Will Smith. And that's when I realized, like, oh, my God, that was not a joke. That was for real. It just put a dark cloud over the rest of the ceremony. And I think it unfortunately took away from, you know, all the winners getting their moments because no one's going to talk about them in mainstream news. When people look back at the ceremony – all they're going to talk about is this incident, and that's really unfair. And, you know, one of my uh, favorite awards commentators who does not work at Gold Derby, he's just, you know, he's a YouTuber that I enjoy listening to. He tweeted out something, and I'm actually going to read his exact quote because, oh, my God, we just got a breaking news. Will Smith has resigned from the Academy after slapping Chris Rock on stage. That is from CNN. Wow. Right as we're recording it, that is breaking. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I'll be surprised if Will Smith will be invited to present Best Actress next year. I really don't know. Okay, so let me do a double take because that that was breaking news. Like, I had to say that in the moment. Okay, so, and one other thing that I agree with that this, um, this YouTuber that I listen to, he's not a Gold Derby member. He's just um, this YouTube Oscar guy that I enjoy listening to. He tweeted out this, um, and I'm going to read his exact quote. Final thought. You know who's really owed an apology? Questlove. Guy had his moment completely, and completely was completely capitalized, overshadowed because of this nonsense. That's who should get an apology. Congratulations, Questlove. 
Your movie was fantastic, and I hope people remember your speech. It was excellent. I agree, because the award that Chris Rock was presenting was Best Documentary Feature, which went to Summer of Soul. And Questlove, who directed the movie, was the one who gave the speech. It was just completely overshadowed by what happened beforehand. In fact, you know, if Will Smith had punched Chris Rock prior to or during final voting, I can see how it probably would have given him a lot of bad publicity. I mean, it happened to Russell Crowe in 2001, you know. After sweeping the season for a beautiful mind, he got into an argument with a producer at BAFTA when his speech got cut down to fit into the telecast. And despite Russell apologizing for it, that still pretty much cost him a second consecutive Oscar win as Denzel Washington pulled ahead for training day. Now, let me ask you this. Had that happened, would it have been Benedict Cumberbatch or Andrew Garfield that had won? Man, I have no idea. I mean, I mean, imagine being an Oscar predictor 20 years ago where, you know, after Russell's incident happens, you know, well, you probably have to ask yourself, okay, well, who's second? I mean, Tarek said, because uh, I, I, I have talked to him about this before. I asked him if he predicted Denzel, and he said yes, because Tom told him that a lot of people were just very tired of Russell Crowe at that point, because it wasn't just that. He was just one, you know, troublemaking incident after the other. And so Denzel was just kind of seen as, you know, it's time to give him a lead actor Oscar, because he came close to winning two years before for The Hurricane, when he lost to Kevin Spacey for American Beauty. It was his time for a Best Actor Oscar, and that's why... He was the one that did it in the end. Although I did ask Tarek, what if uh, Denzel had won for the hurricane and Russell Crowe had done it? Like, would they have gone with someone else? And there was like, he's like, no, Russell would have still won, but they had a reason to go to Denzel. And so that's why, because of this, they went to him. The other three didn't have a chance. Especially since, you know, at that point, you know, Sidney Poitier, who recently deceased Sidney Poitier, was the only person of color to have ever won a Best Actor Oscar. Yes, and like, what was it Denzel said? You know, I spent like, you know, 40 years chasing Sydney. What do they do? They give it to him in the same night. Well, yeah, I believe Denzel even presented the honorary Oscar to Sydney that night. He did, yes. It's just very unfortunate. And I think, you know, for Will Smith, you know, he had been in the industry for 30 years. This was supposed to be the happiest night of his life. This was supposed to be the high point of his career. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be the low point because... Does he ever recover from this is the mm. question. And I really don't know because it's like, yeah, you could just feel the energy in that room completely disappeared once that happened. And it's just, it's really sad. Yeah, yeah it just goes show. Even after final voting closes, you better be on your best behavior. Oh, for sure. You know, when you act up like this, it's like, who wants to work with you? And I think and it, it seems like it took Russell Crowe a, a while to like where he's finally started getting like really good work again. Because like almost like what? No one was paying attention to him for awards buzz for Cinderella Man. I mean, I read that he was kind of considered an afterthought. Well, although I remember he got in everywhere, but well, the movie came out well a while ago at that point, and it wasn't a big success. And not to mention that while he was promoting the movie, well, he got into another incident with the telephone. Jesus. Yeah. Although one nice thing Russell did do that season was, I remember he talked about in an interview how, you know, during principal photography, his co-star Paul Giamatti's mother was dying and Russell made a promise to his mother that he would get her son nominated for an Oscar. And when it came to campaigning, Russell told the campaigners back the kid, which was pretty much what Al Pacino did for him for The Insider, which was, you know, when it came to campaigning for that movie, Al Pacino told the campaigners back the kid. So that's what Russell did for Paul Giamatti and Giamatti got nominated. That's really- really great because Paul Giamatti absolutely should have been nominated the year before for Sideways. And I think that's one of the most egregious nomination snubs. Any final thoughts on the ceremony as a whole before we sign off? 
I really thought the whole segment with Lady Gaga and Liza Minnelli presenting together, I thought that was really, really sweet. Because I was surprised that they gave Lady Gaga, they let her present Best Picture. I mean, I was like, wow, that's a big award, given that you were snubbed when everyone thought you were going to get in. It's sort of like, you know, if they had asked Jennifer Lopez to present Best Picture to Parasite instead of Jane Fonda. <laughs> yeah. Uh, could, you, could you imagine if they had done that? <laughs> Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah i thought it was very sweet god bless les minnelli i thought that was so sweet how lady gaga was like i got you so i thought that was really really nice well yeah in fact i remember reading that lady gaga herself was the one who specifically requested to have les minnelli present best picture with her yeah and so it was, that was really really nice to see yes it was so that's all Jack and I pretty much have to discuss regarding this year's Oscars. For our final subject, I'd like to take this moment to remember two industry veterans we've lost within this past month. Legendary designer Tony Walton died from complications of a stroke on March 2nd at the age of 87. Some of his contributions to Broadway included designing sets, costumes for the original productions of A Funny Thing Happens on the Way to the Farm, The Apple Tree, Pippin, Chicago, The Real Thing, Grand Hotel, Six Degrees of Separation, and The Will Rogers Follies. His final main stem credit was the 2008 flop stage musical adaptation of Charles Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities. Some of his contributions to the movies included 1964's Mary Poppins, 1974's Murder on the Orient Express, 1975's The Wiz, and an Oscar win for 1979's All That's Jazz. He was also the first husband to legendary actress Julie Andrews. Actor William Hurt died of terminal prostate cancer on March 13th at the age of 71. In fact, he was just a week away from turning 72. Hurt earned four Oscar nominations throughout his career. The first three in particular were consecutive. First in 1985 for Kiss of the Spider Woman, which resulted in a win. His second nomination was in 1986 for Children of a Lesser God. He even got to present Best Actress that year to his co-star and girlfriend at the time, Marley Matlin. His third bid was in 1987 for Broadcast News. His fourth and final nod was in 2005 for A History of Violence. In 1984, William Hurt made his one Broadway appearance in a David Rabe play directed by Mike Nichols titled Hurley Burley, which earned him a Tony nomination the following year. He got to be in a cast that consisted of Judith Ivey, Harvey Keitel, Cynthia Nixon, Jerry Stiller, and Sigourney Weaver. In fact, his replacement in the production was John Rubinstein, who won a Tony for originating the role of James Leeds in Children of a Lesser God on Broadway, the same character Hurt went on to play in the 1986 film adaptation. My condolences go out to both of their families. So that's just about does it for the news of this month. I will be back on May 2nd to discuss any bits of entertainment news stories that I found interesting and or important from April. If you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash podcast and follow the simple instructions. Feel free to subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at carereviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.